Hey there, fellow foodies. This is Dr. Quave, and you're listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious. Now, this week on the show, we're going to cover one of my favorite topics, and that is boozy botanicals. And I have just the um, perfect guest for this topic. We have Camper English. He's a cocktails and spirits writer and speaker who's covered the craft cocktail renaissance for over 15 years. He's contributed to more than 50 publications around the world, including in Popular Science, Saveur, Details, Whiskey Advocate, and Drinks International. With a focus on the nerdy side of mixology, he has studied everything from the history of carbonation to the science of clear ice and ice or ice cubes. His books are Doctors and Distillers and The Ice Book, and his website is alchemics.com. I've been following his work for a while on social media, and it's always fun when you meet somebody. I guess, well, we're still through a screen, not in person, but I feel like I know you in some way, campers. It's great to finally meet you in person. Likewise. Great to meet you as well. Yeah. So why don't we dive into kind of just the beginning? What got you interested in writing about this topic of, of botanicals and their role um, in these various cocktails? Well, it, it all started with a gin and tonic. I was uh, writing kind of a trend story for Savour on the gin and tonic and wanted to bring in a little bit of the origin of the drink. And you know, I think we all know the quinine in the tonic water was there to prevent and cure malaria. But I realized that I didn't have a date that was cited as the creation date of the drink. Um, just that was probably in India in the 1800s. And so I thought uh, incorrectly that um, because medicine is so much better documented than drinks are, that I would find uh, more information in history of medicine books. So I read a whole bunch of books about the history of malaria. And uh, it was fascinating. Malaria is such an old disease that basically you get all of the history of medical thought when you study the history of malaria alone. And... Um, I found that alcohol was there in every form all along the way. And I had only known until that point kind of fun facts like, oh, quinine for malaria and citrus for scurvy and things like that. But um, realized that there was enough for an entire narrative looking at the history of medicine and alcohol and how they're really tied together throughout most of history until recently. Um, but I, I didn't ever find a better date for the gin and tonic in any of those books that I studied. I did eventually find the first known reference uh, just using a Google Books search. And it was at a horse race in India. And uh, they're like, oh, after the race, we retired for drinks of gin and tonic and brandy and soda and et cetera. And at that point, it had already become a recreational beverage, clearly by the way they referred to it. So um, yeah, the gin and tonics put me down the path. And at that point, I started collecting all the information about every other uh, medicinal beverage I could find. That's amazing. Well, I mean, the, this, this intersection with malaria is an interesting one because I know you've also written about wormwood and wormwood is, you know, Artemisia um, species. And there's another therapy for malaria that comes from wormwood. So you have two plants that are, you know, useful medicinally, but also have some delightful kind of food values. Um, what can you share with us about wormwood and its, and its role in, in, in cocktails? 
Well, wormwood is, uh, I think most people that you hear wormwood, we think of absinthe, uh, mm -hmm. famously uh, bad for you, makes you go crazy, um, and which is not really true, but um, it's uh, the grand wormwood, which is used in absinthe. There are many Artemisia species and um, they're used in many different beverages as well as in foods. But uh, the grand wormwood is the super, the most bitter of, of the wormwoods and we know it from absinthe. And, um, but absinthe, if, we, if you drink it, it tastes more like anise than it actually tastes like anything bitter. And that's the anise is there to cover up the extreme bitterness of the wormwood. But wormwood was used for, you know, since before written records uh, to, help with various illnesses um, and really to stimulate digestion. It's, it's there all along the way for um, those purposes, but also it was considered a, a vermifuge to help expel an intestinal parasites. Whether it works for that well or not, I, I don't actually know, but uh, we find references to wormwood being used in beer, much like hops is used today. Uh, there were wormwood wines used by the Greeks and the Romans. Mm. Um, these, I wouldn't say they evolved into vermouth, but definitely uh, vermouth comes from the German word for wormwood. And uh, so vermouth is a wormwood drink as well. We just kind of forget that, I think, because again, it doesn't taste uh, extremely bitter or anything like that. And people often use uh, uh, other kinds of wormwood in to make vermouth. Um, and then when distilled spirits come along, then of course, the doctors were putting wormwood into that as well. And that's how we got absinthe. And then a big, the absinthe craze in, uh, in Paris, which was more about phylloxera had destroyed the wine industry and people needed to drink something because you certainly wouldn't want the drinking water in the middle of the 1800s in France. So people switched to absinthe and that caused, it did cause a lot of problems with alcoholism, which they were calling absinthism uh, at the time. And really absinthe took the blame. When the wine industry recovered, the wine producers continued to shed that blame on absinthe because they wanted their market share back. Um, so we have that long history of wormwood and beverages um, dating back to all uses of, of wormwood. That's amazing. You know, I, the more I learn about Artemisia as a genus, the more I love it. Like there's, you know, so you have the absinthe as, as you discussed, and I've, I've had the chance to sample some while traveling in France. And also this is the Chartreuse distillery. I don't know if you've ever been to that place. It's fascinating. It's my, it's my it's dream. Distillery you you have to go and you have to be very quiet while you're there because you know, the monks, they live on this silent mountain so even travelers you have to be very you're not allowed to talk in certain areas while you're in the forest which is a very great you know very nice atmosphere for involving you know, engaging in the forest so you have that you have absinthe artemisia then you have the artemisia annua which is used to treat malaria um dr yu too won the nobel prize for that in 2015 which is amazing um then these other really cool Artemisia species I've, I've encountered recently, like one is called um, tree wormwood and it grows in Sicily. And the first time I encountered this plant, it made me just want to lay down and roll around in it. That's the best way to describe it. It smells so good. Like, I don't know. It was just, it was like catnip for like the human, you know, you just wanted to roll around and it was it, really amazing. And in fact, they use that to bathe babies when they're newborns is to bring them good luck. And then I was just in Japan and I encountered a very, a new Artemisia I'd never met before. 
Um, I talk about plants like they're people <laughs> and human species I just met. Um, but Artemisia princeps, and it's um, what they use to make that, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with these green Japanese kind of um, desserts that have rice. It's like called Yomoji is the, the name of the plant. Um, but it's just showing me over and over again how important this genus is um, in many different food um, sources, both as foods and also as, as kind of in that intersection with medicine. Yeah. yeah, it's it's a huge uh, genus from from what I understand, and um, a lot of them do have the thujone in them, the problematic uh -huh. uh, compound mm -hmm. that in grand wormwood. It's just in much higher concentrations in that grand wormwood, but any um, beverage product that uses wormwood has to test for a thujone level and be under a certain mm -hmm. level. Um, essentially, in in the United States it's negligible amounts of thujone is, is what the definition is. And then they put a number to that. Mm -hmm. uh, but when they went back and tested old bottles of absinthe, they found that it didn't really have all that much uh, thujone in the old bottles. It was really um, much smaller levels and uh, not dangerous at the levels that they were. So we're the absinthe that you can get today, perfectly legal in the United States and a lot of other countries is, as far as we know, pretty um, pretty similar to the absinthe of old. Oh, cool. That's neat. Very cool. Um, okay, well, let's, let's talk a little bit about the role of alcohol. So we know in medicine, alcohol, I guess, can serve as a medicine on its own as kind of a pain painkiller when undergoing some procedure. Um, but also it's used to kind of distill the or, or extract the, the major elements of the plants. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about that, like what you learned in your studies about this intersection between alcohol and creation of medicines. Sure. Um, well, before distilled spirits came, came about, and that's roughly 1200 is the year we put onto that, but um, the, most of the medicinal herbs that people would want to use you have to put them in something liquid um, in order to consume them for the most part. And so that was what people were drinking, which would be in, in Egypt, that would be beer. That was a bread basket of, of the area. And with the Greeks and Romans, that would be wine. And then eventually when spirits are developed, the alcohol does a uh, higher proof you get, the much better job uh, the alcohol does at extracting the, the, the chemical as well as aromatic compounds in plants. Uh, it, it also helps to preserve those medicines um, in that it keeps it in a form that'll be shelf stable, essentially, um, as well as, uh, and I, I think we don't think of this that much, um, plants that are seasonal are now, we, we don't have to wait for the season in order to get your, your medicine for, that comes from a particular seasonal plant. Um, so the infusion of plants into beer, wine, and spirits, sometimes redistilling them is really a way to preserve medicine and make it liquid and drinkable. It, it, alcohol does a lot. <laughs> <laughs> it sure did, right? It's, I think that's a really good point, though, about really extending shelf life of important herbs that people would have relied on as, as medicine. Um, I don't know, how, how many of these that you've sampled, I'm sure many in your, in your explorations of kind of this intersection between medicine and alcohol, but I'm thinking in particular of these bitter beverages, these aperitifs that are really popular in Europe. Um, in my husband's uh, part of Italy, where he originates 
there's a, a an amaro called amaro lucano and it has all these different herbs it's very bitter but just delicious in this very weird way like you wouldn't want to drink a huge glass of it you know it's a small amount at a time but I don't know. I, I, I'm getting the sense that maybe that has some some ties to these features you're talking about, about preserving medicines. Um, what can you share with us about those types of beverages? For sure. Well, Italy is, is really a home to so many different and regionally specific uh, now recreational mm -hmm. that were once medicinal beverages. And, um, you know, the country wasn't unified until relatively recently compared to a lot of other places in the world. So it kind of makes sense that there are so many. And um, I've had Italians visiting uh, where I live in San Francisco, and I've pulled Italian Amari off the shelf and they've been like, I've never heard of that, <laughs> like, because it's made 200 miles from where I live. <laughs> and, um, uh, so it is pretty amazing the, the great diversity that we get of all of these. And they do tend to have a lot of ingredients in common. Um, wormwood is often there, um, but cinchona is uh, for the quinine is in everything. Uh, we, we don't really, we think of that as a tonic water thing, but cinchona tree bark, I call it the electrolytes of 1850s. Like, I don't know if it's going to do anything, but throw it in there. <laughs> it sounds great. Uh, but it does have a, a nice um, bitter impact that's uh, that mm -hmm. is helpful in the beverages. But uh, And then we get gentian, a uh, very bitter uh, root or flower, uh, as well as rhubarb root. And it's not mm. the... Uh, the pie rhubarb that we're thinking of, that we eat the red stalks of it. It's um, Chinese or Turkish rhubarb, and we're eating the root of it, which is bright yellow. It was often, it was used for hair dye in some cultures. And uh, it's got a smoky mustardy flavor that's delightful. Mm. And it's, that's another one that's in all of these beverages uh, that we just don't really know about. All of those four things I mentioned are useful for digestion. Anything bitter is going to help stimulate the, the gastric juices and make your stomach gurgle and get ready for a meal or to help digest a meal afterwards. And those regional Italian liqueurs may have started out as kind of a, a cure-all, like mm -hmm. if you're feeling oogie, have a little bit. If you have a toothache and you can't get to the dentist until Monday, have a little of it, et cetera. Uh, and it's also some people use them kind of like daily vitamins, have a little glass at night. That's like grandma's mm -hmm. little nightcap um, in yeah. the regions of <laughs> Italy. So that's where we get this wide variety with like remixes of a lot of the same base bitter ingredients and then with flavor additives to them, citrus and rose petals and things like that, that, that result in these delicious things like Amaro Lucano, which I, I like. Yeah. Better. Yeah. No, that's fascinating. You know, and I think a lot about, well, talking about gentian, I'm going to, I'm going to spend a moment on gentian because it is such an intensely bitter plant. Um, I had a chance once um, when I was working in Albania and um, a local um, gentleman had a bag of it. So there are challenges with gentian because it's largely wild harvested, which means it's at risk. There's not a lot of sustainable practices around it. And in fact, it's, you know, it's kind of harvest and sale has been banned in some areas. However, where there's an economy, things get sold, <laughs> right? Um, but I had an opportunity to just take just a, you know a piece of the root cut in half and stick it to my tongue, and I have never 
ever experienced something as bitter as that, as that particular, just straight from the root. It was just, I was like, wow, this must go a long way. You know, when it comes to like, you probably don't have to add that much to get a really intensely bitter flavor profile in these beverages. Yeah. The first time I ever tried and I bought some at my local herb supply store and put it in some vodka to infuse it and uh -huh. just gave it, stuck my finger in to give it a little test after like a few minutes. And I was like, ah, <laughs> my mouth. Uh, so yeah, I think a little bit does go a long way. Uh, and I've learned that some some products use the roots and some use the, the actual flowers from it for a slightly mm. different uh, flavor. And there's a yeah. couple of different, there's a yellow one and a blue one and people mm -hmm. use the different, the different ones. That's cool. So you mentioned that you're brewing things up at home. And this always makes me very curious is I like to, you know, I'm not very good at many handcrafts, but like I can, I can make some nice herbal infusions and some nice limoncello at home. So I'm wondering like, what are your favorite kind of DIY recipes that you, that you do at home with your botanicals? And even if it's just using like grain alcohol or vodka, like what are you doing at home? Well, most of what I'm doing at home, and this is like, how nerdy am I? Like, I want to understand the botanicals individually because you can never find just wormwood in a, in a yeah. beverage or just gentian or whatever there are some that are more forward with one botanical or mm -hmm. the other but in order i want to be able to pick up a bottle of campari and be like ah oh, yes rhubarb um and so <laughs> in order to pick those out i go to the herb store and i buy all of the individual botanicals and i make an infusion and then i test them and i try to memorize what each herb tastes like on its own so I can talk um, with more knowledge about the, the finished product. So that's mostly what I'm doing in terms of the bitter botanicals I'm buying at the shop. I'm, I'm not actually making any beverages out of them at all. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> that's great. You're, you're like, it's almost like, you know, um, and I'm, oh, I'm blanking on the name for the, the training that you have to really you know, give a full flavor profile of, of a wine or a vintage, like you're kind of developing that, but for botanical cocktails. Yeah. Like comp component like. tasting. Component sort of tasting. Yeah. That's great. That's fun. Yeah. Um, so out of your, out of these different components, I mean, are there specific components that you're more drawn to that you find to be more delightful or, I mean, and does that affect kind of which types of cocktails that you end up preferring? Um, a lot of it has to do with the final form that the brand has chosen um, mm -hmm. and the mixability of them or not. So Campari, for example, is we always mix it. Almost no one drinks Campari on its own, but it's essential in the Negroni, which has been trending yeah. so, so strongly in the past yes. couple <laughs> of years. Uh, I've been drinking them for a long time, but uh, it's, it's cool to do it now. And that's a real like mixable uh, version of this uh, remix of all of these ingredients, as opposed to the uh, Amaro's like Lucano and uh, Fernet mm -hmm. that sort of don't play necessarily play as well with other ingredients in a cocktail or they will tend to take over. And so I'm looking at them in different ways, depending on how mixable they are or not. And now there's been a big push into American variations of mm -hmm. these old world European um, uh, products. And it's been really fun to see the people will take uh, 
an impression that's like inspired by chartreuse, but also by the mountains in California. And uh -huh. so we'll have a different regionality expressed in the choice of botanicals from one part of the world or another. I'm really into that sort of, uh, you know, bitter terroir, I guess. I like that. Yeah. I feel like there's also a trend, you know, around development of new kind of gin ingredients or things that kind of bring a special flair to, to gin using local sustainable ingredients. And I find that to be really interesting. My friend, um, Suzanne, who's actually been on the show before she, um, that's like one of the jobs that she does is she consults on like which botanicals can be sustainably added to different gin products. And it's, it's a really, it's a really cool thing to think about. Like, how do you take these things that are found in a certain landscape and a certain terroir, but like, in, incorporate them in a sustainable way, um, which is really fun way to make new products. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the regionality in gin had become a very mm -hmm. fun and exciting thing lately. Um, and a lot of people for a while were doing seaside inspired gins. So they have a yes. lot of oyster shells and seaweed. Uh, all of a sudden we're, <laughs> we're in your gin uh, very, <laughs> very often. Yeah, that's really interesting. I don't know if those either of those have any medicinal properties, but um. <laughs> well, you, you know, seaweeds seaweeds are showing some interesting um, interesting medicinal properties. I mean, people have used seaweeds, I think, for a very long time um, in medicine. Um, uh, yeah, but a lot of it's still, of course, very poorly understood by the scientific community. We have a lot of work to to do. I think sometimes these products make it into kind of popular culture. And are you know through other avenues well before we ever understand the full science um, behind how they work, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, I want to shift for a moment to talk a little bit about your newest book, which I hear is like flying off the shelves, <laughs> um, <laughs> which is amazing. Congratulations! So, tell us a little bit about it. You're writing not about herbs in this book, but rather ice. Is that right? Ice, ice, ice and how to make it really. So uh -huh. <laughs> Doctors and Distillers was a book that was like a lot of very research intensive and uh, used a lot of references to come up with it. And there's only like one little illustration per each of nine chapters, whereas the ice book is a, is a heavily illustrated book um, with fantastic pictures throughout. Hi. But um, it uh, that's about how to make super clear ice and freeze stuff inside of it and carve it into diamonds and spheres Ooh. and um, flavor it and color it. And it's just things that you can do with ice cubes. And there are not all that many words to it. And uh, because I had been, this is my arts and crafts that I do at home, essentially, is just making mm -hmm weird kinds of ice. I, um, I, I think done, that's great. That's a great, that's a great hobby. <laughs> it's, it's, it's super cheap. You just, it's water. Um, <laughs> and uh, I, because I've been doing that for over 10 years now, and I'd, um, I developed a technique for making clear ice at home uh, where, without mm -hmm. moving parts. And it, bartenders knew about it, but uh, it's when the YouTubers and the Instagrammers and TikTokers TikTokers started demonstrating it online that it really took off. And now there's ice talk and things like that. Wow. <laughs> people really showing off their impressive ice uh, to other people <laughs> online. And so that did more for the popularity of the methods that I developed than anything else. And uh, we hit good timing with, with the book coming out. It, it took a while to get a, a publisher interested in a book on ice cubes, but... Uh, <laughs> 
and then the media is uh, eating it up. We had a, there was a big New York Times story about the book and my history, and uh, that sold out pretty much all of the copies currently in existence. Uh, there are That's more being printed as we speak. Um, and then there's news this week, Starbucks is changing their ice. Um, and so people have real deep thoughts about that. And so I've been okay. getting calls from uh, other media sources in the, in the past day asking, you know, so what is it about this? Uh, ice? <laughs> so, you know, it, it is funny, like, how important ice is to our everyday routines. You know, there's my, my like dream kitchen gadget is not going to be about like big cocktail ice. What I really, really want are one of those kind of sonicated ice machines. They give you the little ice pebbles. There's something about it reminds me of my childhood of having big glasses of sweet tea with those little, little, you know, ice pellets. It's just, yeah. Ice takes so many forms and it's tied to so many, I think, different experiences for people. So it does become an important part of the conversation. Yeah. And soon you'll get that ice at Starbucks, um, according <laughs> to the news. Uh, the crunchy ice, people are obsessed. Uh, and yeah, and it's really, I always think of the the Pizza Hut, the red tumbler cup with, with yeah. that crunchy ice in it. That's my ice, like, yeah. good memory of, of that crunchy ice. But I also, it's also hospital ice that they just give it. Well, I'm, I'm also, I was thinking about that. Maybe that's why I liked it so much. I spent so much time in the hospital as a kid. I really like the ice. <laughs> <laughs> thought of it that way. Like right. Pro tip, pick your ice from the, from the hospital. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. Well, that's, that's so cool. And that's something I guess anyone can really play around with at home um, with different ice forms. And yeah, well, congratulations. I mean, that's every, I think every author's dream is when books fly off the shelves. And it sounds like you've mastered the art of book talk meets ice talk. <laughs> so that's great. So what are you thinking next? I know you're just getting this out the door, but do you have any any new things you're you're considering for the future or things that caught your fancy while you're doing research on on these two books? I I do. I have a couple things I'm pursuing to see if there if there's mm -hmm. enough there for a mm -hmm. book. But I think in general my my niche is uh, sort of popular science for cocktails. Uh, mm -hmm. the, the ice book has some of that. It's not, I didn't explain much of the science, but it's based on <laughs> no understanding the science. And then Dr. Sin's Distillers, of course, is the history of medicine, but also really, I got really nerdy about uh, gas science uh, and how the scientists use understanding of carbonate, naturally carbonated mineral springs and uh, beer that's fermenting to come up with all sorts of discoveries, elemental gases and the germ theory of disease and all that, it all comes from fizzy water and beer. Um, and that, so I, I took some time and explored that at depth in the book because I was really into it. But yeah, for other books I'm thinking of, they, they're along those lines as well. It's, it's something that's like, no one knew you needed to know about all of that. <laughs> But once you do, you're going to be very glad you do. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Well, we'll definitely have to have you back because, you know, for all the listeners on the show, they, they've, I think they've gotten the hint that I'm kind of crazy about fermented foods. <laughs> and so I love anything that ferments and creates gases and like, you know, how this transforms the, our flavors and our mouthfeel of foods. I think that's just really interesting also the health value of foods in some cases when the mi microbes help break down some of the molecules and release more nutrients so 
yeah, I was excited to learn that it's true that when people drank beer instead of water, that that was getting a way to get nutrients uh, as well as hydration at, at the same time. Uh, I thought yeah. that was just kind of like, well, I'm drinking the beer for it because it has a lot of water in it. <laughs> I guess I that's I'd be curious what the alcohol level used to be. <laughs> yeah, not not yeah. super high, I don't think. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was also really chunky. People had to, you had to, straws were invented to push through the floaty stuff on the top of beer. Um, in order wow. to get it. So the early depictions of people drinking beer are with a long reed stuck into a big uh, vase of, of sorts to drink the beer underneath the surface. I had no idea. That's yeah. wild. <laughs> cool. Well, okay. Before we wrap, I have to ask, do you have a favorite cocktail recipe that you might be able to share with us? Oh, well, let's just go with the Negroni since we were talking about okay, it yes. earlier. <laughs> and that's also an easy one because it's equal parts of uh, the ingredients. So that is the Negroni is uh, it's a Italian classic and it is equal parts Campari, which is a red bitter aperitif liqueur um, from Italy uh, and equal parts gin and uh, red or sweet vermouth. And uh, so one ounce each and you're, you're done. Um, and uh, the fun thing about the, the Negroni is that you can just add ice to your glass and pour mm -hmm. those ingredients on top and give it a quick stir, maybe an orange uh, peel or zest mm -hmm. on the top of it. But uh, it's an unfussy drink that's got so much, so many layers of complexity to it mm -hmm. that it's, uh, it's a great drink before a meal or, or any time. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. I let I do. I think I think you're right. It's the complexity of those bitters and all those different herbs that go into making. Um, yeah, the especially the the Campari element really brings it out. It's nice. Very yeah, the very. More, cool. The more I do my home experiments, testing the rhubarb <laughs> invention separately, the more I understand Campari, and that's that's uh, my fun at home. <laughs> that's awesome. That's awesome. Well, um, Camper, where can I send folks to find you and find more about your work? Um, can you tell us about your website and your social media handles? Certainly. Uh, Alcademics.com is my website. Uh, that's been up for, I don't know, 15 years or so. And all of everything I've ever written is, is either there or linked from there. Mm -hmm. And uh, I get real nerdy on ice and have for more than a decade, as well as other kind of science adjacent cocktail information there. I also have two other websites. Uh, one is called Cocktail Safe, and this is kind of related to these medicinal ingredients that we're talking about, because things like quinine and wormwood are regulated and you don't wanna just have all that you can have yeah. uh, and, and drink. Uh, and with the uh, TikTokers and Instagrammers, we gotta be careful of um, dangerous flowers and plants. They just because mm. they're organic and you got it from the forest doesn't mean it's safe to put in your drink. Poison yeah. ivy is also organic, um, and you know <laughs> not to put it in your mouth. Um, yeah. So cocktail safe <laughs> exists for as a reference, mostly for bartenders or consumers who want to know about safety and ingredients. Then I also have uh, cocktailgreen.org, which is um, more about sort of re finding new uses for citrus peels and um, mm -hmm. things like that, um, that bartenders were very into, especially pre-pandemic. And then we all had to switch to plastic for a couple of years, <laughs> but now we're back. Now <laughs> we're we're back. about yes. the environment again. <laughs> 
That's great. I mean, you're doing amazing work in the field camper and um, yeah, I'm excited to continue to read your work and thanks so much for coming on the show. I know that the audience is going to really enjoy this one. Well, thanks a lot for having me. It's yeah. nice to meet you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you too. Um, you've been listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious recorded for you today on Restream. I want to give a big shout out of thanks to our show's producers, to Rob Cohen and Christine Roth of Co-Conspiracy Entertainment. I also want to remind you, um, all of you foodies, if you're interested in supporting the show, you can head over to our website where we have lots of cool show swag. It's at mysterycontrol.com. We've got mugs and t-shirts and, and lunchboxes and all kinds of fun stuff on there for you to check out. All right. Thanks so much for listening. Stay healthy out there and I'll see you next time. <laughs>